Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. Neil, do you want to kick us off this episode with a bit of podcast news? Yeah, we've passed a milestone. We passed 30,000 total downloads. Big thank you to everybody. Last month's episodes were quite popular. Or very popular, actually. We've passed 1,000 downloads on most of them, apart from the latest one, which only came out on the 31st. So that's pretty good. So, uh, yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening and sharing and all that kind of stuff. It's really helping us out. And we're, we're continuing to grow, which is... All jolly good. Yeah, big, big, big thank you, everyone. It's uh, it's amazing. So, have you had any sightings at all recently? No. <laughs> no. Uh, so I jump straight to mine? Yeah, then to, I... <laughs> to be fair, I've not really been out, if I'm honest. I've seen a few bits of like fungi and that's about it. So, yeah. Over to you, Neil, because you've probably got... Really awful is. lot more sightings than I have. Yeah. Oh, you, you had that nice antler fungus picture you put up. Yeah, I did have the, the staghorn fungus from actually just yeah. a couple of days ago that was photographed. So there we go. So, so yeah, yeah. being negative. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the polite way of putting it is naffle fungus. I don't know what's going on with my luck this year or that, but I have been to a bit of woodland. I haven't been out as much as I would normally, I suppose, but that might be part of the problem. But I have had some luck with the old feathered things. I had a raven fly less than 10 metres over my head calling, which is awesome because that's the closest i've ever been to a raven i think um i got up really early and headed to somewhere on the way to work to try and see an otter where it had been seen didn't have much luck with the otter but i did see a kingfisher which is you know never a bad thing and it was a really nice floodplain and there was mist hanging over it so i've actually got some landscape shots as the sun came up which is very unusual for me <laughs> but you know it was so nice even i took photos of a, landscapes a, a, a what shot neil did you say a landscape? Yeah, you know the stuff behind in the background we normally have out of focus? Some oh, people oh, yeah, just yeah. photograph it. Oh, wow. Weird. Yeah, oh, that. That's interesting. And it? it's all in focus. There's no sort of shallow depth of field or anything. Oh. Very confusing. And I have this small short lens that's in my bag that I very rarely get out. It worked quite well for it. So, you know, there's a tip for you there for listeners. You know, if you've got one of these kit lenses or 12 to 24 mil lenses, they work well for this thing called landscape. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? But anyway... I did do some macro as well. It was a quite nice sunny day and I was out the last day for lockdown, I think it was. And I found some sunbathing ladybirds, some nursery web spiders, a couple of common data dragonflies, maybe my last ones, although I had some mid-November last year. And oh, a couple of caddisfly, which is quite nice. It's always nice to find an adult caddisfly. I always usually see them as larvae being me. And I spent two hours yesterday trying to photograph some one to two millimetre long springtails that were sitting on top of water. Which was I tried to get them on my pond in situ to start with, which was just a total non-starter because they tend to hop. So it's not familiar with springtails. They're what are known as hexapods. So they used to be insects, but their mouth parts aren't derived enough to be insects. So they're now hexapods, which is related to insects. And they have two little prongs under their abdomen. So when they're scared, they just ping and just disappear. Kind of a little bit like fleas, I suppose, in a way. It's been ages photographing them because I'm working on a new project I probably can't talk about yet. I probably might be able to. Hopefully next episode. I think I did it last episode. That And there's two species of aquatic springtail. And I've already photographed one. I thought this was the second one. But it also turns out there's a third species. And I, it was that one instead, not the second species I wanted to get. And this third one is called... Now hold on to your hats. I'm going to try and read uh, Latin here. Sniferides aquaticus. Or something like that. There's a little globular thing for those that know springtails. A little round 
blob with a head on. Um, and they're almost completely white. So cool little things, but my word, what a pain in the what's it to photograph. And I think they do look a little bit like the doozers from Fraggle Rock anyone remembers those we've had some feedback haven't we i think you're going to go with the first one aren't you vic we have yeah we've had some absolutely fantastic feedback so thank you again to everyone that has taken the time to give us some feedback so this is a message from pete etheridge and he said firstly i absolutely love the podcast i only discovered it last week and have been binging on all the past episodes it's a great mix for wildlife enthusiasts of all sorts from keen amateurs to professionals like me I really like how you don't gloss over the issues and particularly enjoyed the episode you did with Yolo Williams. The reason for emailing is that in one of your episodes you mentioned about the harbour porpoises that have been spotted in the River Parrot at Bridgewater. I can't remember which episode this was, but it was, I think we actually mentioned it a couple of times. Um, Pete said he did a whole series of wintering bird surveys along the parrot over the winter of 2017 to 2018. Interestingly, recorded harbour porpoise on every single visit. He submitted all these records to CERC, which is the Somerset Environmental Records Council. So they actually have them all on file. But he said, you know, maybe it's a little bit more common than we actually think it is. Because, if you know, we, we probably see it once in a while. Or when you see these things, you think, oh, it's a bit of a freak occurrence. You know, from Pete's stuff surveys he was doing it would suggest that it's actually something that happens quite regularly which is really interesting so thank you so much for sending that in Pete, because that is really lovely feedback but also really interesting to know that those sightings are a lot more common than you know once in a while i think what happens a lot of these things is someone that doesn't normally walk along there sees it goes wow and then they mean they either stick it on twitter and they've got a big following and the press pick it up that way or they mention it to a certain person who does a press release you know and, and then suddenly it's this headline news and all the local dog walkers would be like see that every day (laughs) yeah that does happen i have i have come across things like that in the past like you quite often get the adder scene it's kind of yeah we see them there all the time (laughs) but that's where you know you have individuals that do the specific surveys yeah like he said he's doing a wintering Mm. bird survey but you know he's seeing the the harbour poor points it actually shows how important those people out there doing the surveys actually are for all wildlife so good on you pete keep it up yeah Definitely. Yeah, that, that, exactly. I 100 agree with that. Uh, all these volunteers gathering all this data. It's absolutely critical. We've had another email from Mark Robinson to say he loves the podcast. Another one that's discovered it in the last few weeks. And he said, we were in desperate need of a British wildlife podcast. And I'm so glad you filled the gap. I appreciate the time put in. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks very much. <laughs> and that is exactly what we want to do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, uh... exactly. Yeah, there are some other ones out there, but nothing... I don't think anything quite the same, exactly the same vein as what we're doing. Um, and some of you might have seen I did a thread on Twitter on various podcasts. Not not all of them British ones, but well worth checking that out if you're on Twitter. And he also suggested we mention the iNaturalist app, which is quite good if you're looking for wildlife and want to record it, but not quite sure what you found, because they have sort of people to help ID it for you there. A bit like some of these Facebook groups work. And I think it's linked to iRecord. I think I get records from iNaturalist into iRecord, because as the Essex Dragonfly recorder, I get all the Essex records from iRecord. That's another app that's sort of linked to it, and there's websites to them. If you Google iNaturalist and iRecord, you can see what it's all about, but they're they're very handy and you know i find i record very useful when i'm walking around if i see say a comma butterfly i know what it is to go duh, 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 fill in a few bits on the form it gets a gps data off my phone and off it goes to the essex or wherever county i means recorder so very good source of records let's go check it out and they're really useful as well because if you record when you're out you're doing it while you're out there and then yeah. you don't forget to do it when you get home Which I'm and those doing. records really really <laughs> do help on you know i 
the number of times I've thought, oh, I, I must re record all these sightings. And then you leave it and then you realise you've got a month's worth of sightings to enter and you're just like, oh, I really should have done this at the time. But it's great because those records actually really help people um, that are monitoring different species because they have access to them. So they're really, really good. Yeah, it's been and fantastic. I think a lot of the data for the willow emerald damselfly spreading across the UK has come from iRecord and data, and iNaturalist and apps like that, people putting data in that way. So on to the news. And I'm actually going to kick off with something that for those of us that have seen the footage, you know, it's probably no surprise that a man has been charged after a dog's fatal attack on a Richmond Park deer. Now, apparently this is the fourth fatal attack this year. Certainly, like Neil and I, we're not surprised about this. You see the footage and, you you know, you see these dogs going after the deer and everything. It is no surprise that this happens. I mean, I'm shocked that it's only the fourth one, to be honest. You know, I guess it, it it's going to happen and it's, unfortunately, it's there's some very responsible dog owners out there and we have to applaud those responsible dog owners that do keep their dogs under control, keep them on the leads when they're supposed to keep, be that in royal parks, and uh, national parks or nature reserves. But unfortunately, there is a small minority of irresponsible dog owners, which this applies to. And things happen when dogs are off the leads in areas that you've got rutting deer. It, it's a dangerous situation. I saw another story while looking at this one where there's a tiny little pup you know, not even up to the ankles of a red deer stag. And the red deer stag is looking down at it about six inches, or its antlers about six inches from the dog's face. And you just think, what sort of irresponsible idiot is letting their dog do that? The poor dog is going to end up as a kebab. And that has happened. Dogs have been killed by deer. Uh, I mean, I saw it when I was doing the right of my local park. I mentioned in the last episode. Oh, it's just embarrassing. I mean, obviously you get idiots with their phones and even, I hate to say it and admit it, but even the supposedly proper wildlife photographers with their proper cameras getting too close. No, but I should say on the on the note of the good dog owners that I read somewhere and I was trying to find out what if there was like an official organisation or just a chat with a blog. But in the Royal Parks, you have to keep your dogs on the lead near any water body. I think that's all year round. And there's one dog owner that is desperately trying to encourage all these fellow dog owners to obey the rules and you know not let their dogs chase the wildlife because he actually says and admits that they could end up the royal parks could end up banning dogs entirely from richmond park and places like that because of the disruption they cause yeah i mean i applaud that group and that chat i'll try and dig out the name for the follow-up next or next episode yeah and, and just a quick you know i think i'd like to say a quick thank you to all those responsible yeah. dog owners out there that are abiding by the rules and are keeping their dogs under control on leads to help keep our wildlife safe but still being able to go out and enjoy it so thank you yeah i hope at some point we're going to try and get the colton masters warden on uh, colton marshes warden i should say um and he's set up a scheme where he's got the dog owners keep an eye out for the other dog owners and really good scheme there so they've got a nature mm. reserve with dog owners and minimal issues there but uh, so yeah that's just perhaps something that going forward people can look at obviously it wouldn't work in every area but worth a go right moving on to yeah. the next story this is an exciting good news story. Go mm. for it, Neil. You're going to do a good news story. Yay! The great fox spider has been found again for the first time since the 90s, which is a, well, for the spider lovers out there, a large lycostid, which is basically wolf spider in English. And it's only ever been found in Dorset and Surrey over three sites. And Mark Waite was walking around a Ministry of Defence site in Surrey that they haven't seen exactly where, possibly because there's no public access that I can see anyway. And he found it. I think he found some uh, unidentified immature spiderlings. So, you know, suspected he'd um, found something interesting. And when he went back, 
he found a load of mature males and a female. So that's really cool. They're quite big, big little things. Big little things. <laughs> it's not an oxymoron. Big little things. It's not quite an oxymoron <laughs> that it sounds like. Uh, I think that when looking around, they're getting on for the size of some of these nursery web spiders. That you, you know, so it's pretty good, pretty big size for a wolf spider in this country. Uh, but yeah, really cool. And best of all, it's part of a management program by Fibon Reptile Conservation. That's ARC, A-R-C, um, who are really cool guys that look after the sand lizards and it's all great stuff. Please do check it out because this is one beautiful spider, isn't it, Neil? Let's face it. I mean, this is a beauty of a spider. And I didn't notice until I read it again for this podcast, but Nick Baker's been quoted in it, which is really cool. It was a mega. It's about as handsome as a spider gets. It's big and now officially a member of the British fauna again. So that's really cool. And it is, yeah, as we say, do check it out. It's got rather nice patterning on it. I think like a lot of photographers, it's gone quite high up on our list of things to photograph now. I have to admit, you know, I saw somebody did actually share it with me and and like i think the headline was giant spider found in the uk and i looked at it and went then i looked at the size like right please define what you mean by giant it's no more than an inch it's not as big as a house spider but it's big for a wolf spider in the uk but it's not big for a wolf spider internationally or big by any it's probably about medium size almost it's probably in the top half if you can all the money spiders because that drags everything down in, of UK But then when, when but, you've yeah. seen big spiders overseas and somebody says giant spider, you're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then you read it and it's like, oh, yeah. okay, maybe not. Exactly. <laughs> it's still amazing. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. And we have one worrying story. We do. And it's, oh, I've got the bad news stories this week, yeah. haven't I? Um, <laughs> and you've got to mention the B word. So campaigners fear that the legal body designed to protect the environment on behalf of the citizens is being undermined by the UK government. Ministers promised that after... Oh, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) Ministers promised that after Brexit, laws on air, water and waste would be policed by an independent office for environmental protection, or the OEP. Previously, these laws were enforced by European courts, which prosecuted EU governments that breached these green rules. Ministers have promised that the OEP would be similarly independent, but they now want to grant themselves powers to advise the new body, which means they can tell it to ignore protection laws they are breaking. So there's a lot of nervous environmentalists out there, probably remember the history of the Environment Agency, which was set up under the statute to be independent. The Labour government said it wanted the agency to be a strong, independent voice championing the environment, said Becky Willis, professor in practice at the Lancaster Environment Centre. But subsequent governments got fed up of being criticised, so they basically silenced the agency over a period of time, and the chairman and women were told to not criticise ministers openly. Which is why our rivers are in such a dire state. Yeah, and there's been some some pretty damning reports, actually, that have come out um, about our rivers in recent weeks. I know certainly there's one to come out for Somerset in the recent weeks. Um, I think there's a few more that have come out across the country about the state of our rivers and how polluted they actually are, which is really quite worrying. But as with all of our news stories, we will put some links up on our website and share them so that you can actually... Yeah, I think most of them are up already, but they will be... We'll kind of link them to this podcast, this episode, so that you can kind of go out and have a read and check them out and catch up on them yourselves right should we move on to something i think we should fun? let's get away from the news it's a bit depressing so we're going to talk about the winter thrushes around this time of year we get an invasion of many birds from well more northern places generally and there's something on twitter today there was a recovery of a robbing originally ringed in shetland on the 14th of october turned up on the 16th of october at bempton in yorkshire so in just two days it traveled 655 kilometers which is about 400 miles so a lot for a little bit that's pretty good 
not for a little bird yeah and we get loads more i think we get missile thrushes definitely get blackbirds coming in but we're not talking about them today we're going to talk about the two species that are almost entirely made up of winter visitors but we'll talk a bit more about that later and that's the field fair and the red wing so i think you're going to kick us off with the field fair aren't you Neil? i am indeed so field fairs are the bigger of the two they're about missile thrush size so 25 centimeters long 40 centimetre wingspan, 80 to 130 grams in weight, and they have a sort of grey head, uh, and their rump as well is, is that same colour, a black tail, a wingtips, and they're chestnut brown generally with a speckled breast. They're yeah, quite a handsome bird up close actually, and you can hear them this time of year with their chack, 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 call as they're flying around. Now, uh, the word field fair comes from the Anglo Saxon word for feldware, which means traveller of the fields. Uh, which owes to their habit of, sort of hopping around fields, usually a bit later in winter than yeah January, February, I tend to see them on the ground more. We do have some that breed in this country, or namely Scotland, uh, but only one or two pairs. Uh, most of them go north in summer. But because only one or two pairs breed here, they're actually red-listed, because the numbers that breed here are declining. But in winter, we have about 700,000 birds turn up on our shores. So they arrive in October, November time, and tend to leave sort of February, April. Now, they can be quite long-lived. The oldest ever was 14 years old, but typically only live two years, and breed only once in that time. When they first arrive, they'll be in the bushes eating berries of hawthorn, holly, rowan, yew, juniper, dog rose. Ketoniaster's a favourite, along with pyrocanthra and berberis too. Um, but later on, they start dropping down to the ground and eating the windfall apples. They've been known to peck at swedes as well in fields, and grain and seeds sometimes. But generally, when they're on the ground, they're looking for sort of grubs and worms and all those sort of things. I've certainly seen them pulling worms up in a field. They tend to hang around in fields and hedgerows and little woodlands. You'll see them in fields, but only generally where there's some trees and stuff to go and shelter in nearby. Now, I have seen them in parks and stuff like that, hopping around on the ground. What Tyler Country Park in Essex we used to frequent. They hang around in the hawthorn bushes at the start of winter, and then they start hopping down into the fields towards the end. But when the weather gets really harsh, they'll start turning up in marshes, and they've even recorded on foreshores of beaches and eating all the mollusks and stuff they can find there but they also turn up in gardens as well so when, when it snows you sometimes get them in gardens i actually had a filfer in my garden for the first time when we had that snow well, last time we had decent snow i had filfer in my garden put it that way now once the winter's finished they return to their breeding areas now most of them go up to scandinavia from this country but there are some that breed in germany and eastern europe and russia as well so a bit further south than us which is you know <laughs> a bit confusing to us because we think they go north in summer but some of them seem to go east and i have actually seen them in germany in june uh, the one time i went there so which is a bit confusing because i thought filfers they're a northern species what's going on here and they're hopping around like blackbirds running around between the bushes which is really cool to see now, when they're nested in Scandinavia or wherever they've gone, uh, they tend to be in trees in colonies, but quite a lot of pairs will go and nest on their own. Those that breed in colonies will tend to be more successful when they're nesting early, because when they arrive back early, there's no leaves in the trees, which if you nest on your own, you're quite exposed and more vulnerable to predation. But if you've got a colony of you, you can all sort of gang up on any predators that come in. They do have a rather excellent way of defending themselves, which is if an avian predator, sparrowhawk or something, comes in too close to their nests, they'll start pooing on them and clog up their feathers, which it can actually be quite serious for a bird if you get too much poo in your feathers because you can't fly. Probably quite an effective technique. But an experiment found that when they put out a, a model little owl, 
they'd come down and mob it and attack it and try and get it to fly away. But when a stoat or something came along, where the pooing wouldn't be quite as effective, they just sort of sneak away from the nest to try and avoid giving away its position to the predator. So, nice bit of adapted anti-predator defence there. But you can find them quite often foraging with other birds, like starlings, and also red wings, which I believe you're going to cover now, Vic. I am. So, because they're actually often found, as Neil said, in association with field fares. So the red wing is actually the smallest true thrush that we get here. Also known as the wind thrush. Quite like that name. And the swine pipe. I'm sure there's some interesting stories behind that one. That's definitely one to be looking up. Or if you know, please get in touch because we'd love to know. What do they look like? Well, they have a speckled breast brown back wings and head and then they have a pale line just above the eye in the areas around the wing and then under the wing is actually red hence the name red wing and i think once you see them they're, they're quite distinguishable once you see a red wing and you've identified it you, you really know what they look like size wise they only they weigh about 63 grams it's not a big bird wingspan of about 34 centimeters and a total length of about 21 centimeters so you know we, we are talking quite a smallish bird so like field fairs they start the winter feeding on berries and windfall fruit but move on to feeding in open fields and worms etc as they run out of kind of the berries and fruit typically they're found in trees and open fields including parks football pitches etc but only come into gardens in extreme weather and as neil was saying actually i think it was a couple of years ago Actually, do you know what? I think it might have been March 2019, or around about that time, we had a really cold snap. And I remember seeing a lot of reports about people seeing field fairs and red wings in their back garden. And they were putting, you know, fruit and stuff, like apples and stuff out for them. Or, you know, sticking apples on sticks. They often flock with field fairs and starlings. Obviously, starlings are something we, we also get a huge influx in over winter as well. Those that are overwintering in Scotland and Ireland tend to come from Iceland, whereas those that winter in England and further south in Europe tend to come from Russia and Scandinavia. So they're, they're kind of coming from different areas. Those migrating from Scandinavia will gather on the southwest coast and take off at dusk, travelling the 500 miles or so across the North Sea in one go. But sadly, if the weather turns against them, many of them can actually drown. If you stand outside at night during their migration, you can actually hear them calling as they fly over and, and make that journey so you know maybe stand outside and see if you can hear them so when do they arrive well they typically start to arrive late september late october time and they'll they'll be with us for quite a few months leaving again early march to mid-april time and i guess a lot of that is going to be weather dependent as with a lot of birds most return to iceland scandinavia and russia to breed during the springtime when they breed they breed in conifer and birch forest and on the tundra nesting in shrubs or uh, sometimes on the ground as well and they generally have a couple of broods now we do have some that breed in the uk about 24 pairs a year but they're all in the northern half of scotland but this is actually declining and they are now a red listed species the longest lived was nearly 12 years old but as with field fairs, they typically only live a couple of years, only breeding once during that lifetime. In terms of, you know, the European population, there's about four to six million pairs in Europe. And of that, about 690,000 over winter in the UK. So that kind of give you a bit of an idea. Yes, they're interesting birds. I did, I did find one other paper, which is actually comparing um, them to waxwings, which is a bird we'll certainly come back to in another episode. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting because they were trying to work out what happens to these birds is, is once a food gets to a certain point, they move on further south. And that's what controls how many come over here to some degree. And certainly with the waxwings it does. But that's, that's something for another episode. But what I thought was interesting is they don't sort of go, oh, this tree's completely run out of berries. 
when we get things like rowans and stuff like that, the berries come in a clump. They're called an inflorescence, this sort of cluster of berries. And when they get to a point where each one of these fluorescences has only got a few berries left on, so it's not when all the berries are gone, it's when the abundance per one of these inflorescence is at a certain level, they then move on. And waxwings have a higher tolerance of that, so there'll be even less berries on them before the waxwings move on, which is why we get field fairs every year, but we don't get waxwings every year. So I thought that was quite an interesting little nugget of scientific information there. Which uh, That is really if interesting. If you want to learn more of them, BTO website's place to go. RSVB's got some good stuff as well. But the BTO have basically got fact files on every bird, links to papers, and they've got a link to um, these animated maps which let you see all the ring data across Europe for these species so you can see where all the filfare records were in June and you can see they're all in Scandinavia and Germany eastwards but as the year goes on they all start moving westwards and southwards it's all quite fascinating to see you can see go all the way down to sort of Turkey and Spain in some places so it's uh, really quite cool but I think that's all we've got to say about them at the moment we'll probably come back to them again at some point I think but we just thought because it's that time of year and we will start to see some of these over well I think we are starting to see some of these overwintering birds starting to arrive on our shores it'd be a nice thing to start the month off with yeah really. and if the weather turns bad in the next few months keep an eye on those berry bushes in your garden and supermarkets and uh, you might get a treat and see them it's really good but if not just head in your your daily exercise because we're in lockdown aren't we have a look out in your local park for them yeah see what you can see and let us know you know if you do see any let us know through one of our channels coming up to wrapping up time but we do have some news this should be out before this happens but we've got our one year anniversary coming up on the monday the 16th of november we will have a live show at eight o'clock probably on instagram we'll put the news out on all the social medias before then uh, so do check it out i think it's probably gonna end up being instagram because we tried on facebook before mm. but we couldn't both join it yeah well we, I, ha- I might have a workaround for facebook but uh, we'll probably go with instagram just to keep it simple and uh, you can ask us questions i think i might tell the story of how the podcast come about it's not that you know riveting <laughs> but you know you might be interested in what, what podcast influenced but it's definitely it's an interactive one so you know, certainly by sunday night sunday the 15th by the evening you we will have decided where it's going out. So do keep an eye on that. And, you know, we, we do want people to get involved. As I said, it's just going to be a special kind of live episode for our one year anniversary. You can come on and ask us loads of questions and come and kind of join us for our first birthday. And we do have an anniversary episode on top of that. I would say a normal episode, but it's not entirely normal because we have a very special guest. We have... Oh, we do. So exciting. We, do. we have George McGavin coming on the show. He very kindly agreed to come on. So yay. Yay. Yeah. As you can tell, like Neil and I both really super excited yeah. about having him on. Ever since I saw him crawl into a log on Lost Land of the... <laughs> was it Jaguar? Whatever the first one of those Lost Lands was, I went... Oh. I think it was from watching my mum going, I like this man. He looks cool. <laughs> I like him. <laughs> so he's a big fan of the invertebrates. So obviously we're going to like him. Yeah. Definitely. But I think that's it from us. For once, we won't waffle on too long. Well, we look forward to seeing you, hearing from you on our one-year anniversary. Yeah. And please do join us to celebrate that milestone. Well, thanks very much, everybody. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye.